This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Rishi Sunak loses his marbles and causes a diplomatic spat in the process. Gareth Gates discusses bullying, resilience and tabloid gossip. And The Nature Cure, how time outdoors transforms our memory, imagination and logic. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, as Rishi Sunak doubles down on a diplomatic snub, it seems it's not just the Greeks who've lost their marbles. As imagined by John Crace, read by Dan Starkey. Rishi Sunak kicked off his Prada loafers and sprawled out on the sofa. It had been another long day of everything going exactly to plan. The autumn statement in which taxes were going down while still going up. The net migration figures where getting tough on foreigners meant allowing more of them into the country. He couldn't quite understand why people weren't more grateful for everything he had done. A rare half hour with time to kill. Rish reached for the laptop and began scrolling the Harrods website. He could do with a new suit. Tricky. He couldn't decide on the fit. Was he a size 8 to 10 year old or 10 to 12? One was too small with the trousers coming halfway up his legs. The other too large. Or were these emotional age groups? In which case he might be better off in the toddler range. Just as he was verifying his bank details, he tried waving his card vaguely at the laptop. There was a knock on the door. It was Oliver Dowden. Rish smiled. He was glad of the interruption. He could do with some company. Hi, Olive, he said. Good to see you, Rishta, the Deputy Prime Minister replied. What's up? Er, like, it's really heavy, said Olive. I think we might have an international incident on our hands. Like, the Greek Prime Minister, Zorba, whatever his name is, 
is planning to use a few minutes of his hour-long chat with you to ask for the Elgin marbles back. No! Yes, the Greeks have only gone and decided that their decades-old policy of wanting the sculptures returned to the Parthenon is still their policy now. Can you believe it? What a bunch of shits. Rish stood up and paced the room. Now he was really fired up. This was an insult. Not just to the UK as a whole, but to him personally. The Greeks were going to try and embarrass him in public. Just imagine the shame. After a long conversation about immigration, the Greeks really needed to get their act together on that. It was a disgrace how many people were arriving there by boats. And a few pleasantries about Ukraine and Israel. There will be a harmless exchange in which Kyriakos Mitsotakis asked the marbles and he said no. There was no place for that kind of adult diplomacy in his Tory government. What on earth would halfwits like Lee Anderson and Brendan Clark Smith say? This just can't happen, Olive, said Rish. He could feel another hissy fit coming on, perhaps even a full-on temper tantrum. They were getting more and more frequent. Quite right, Mister, Dowden shouted. We can't have the Greeks coming over here and walking all over us with their reasonableness. Hell, we didn't leave the EU to have grown-up international relations with our neighbours. Where was the fun in that? The whole point was to run down the economy and to make fun of foreigners, putting the little back into Great Britain. What's more, I've been disrespected. Rish pouted. There is a pecking order in the list of global leaders, and the Greek bloke is well below me. His country isn't even in the G20, so he doesn't get to decide what we talk about. I do. There's only one thing for it. Cancel the meeting. Sunak grabbed the phone and searched the contacts. G for Greek man. He started texting. Soth, we now can't meet. I'm decorating the Christmas tree. But you can't have your fucking marbles. We stole them, so they are ours. Now run along. What bit of piss off don't you get? P.S. If you're really desperate, you can have a chat with Olive instead. Within seconds, there was a reply. Have it your own way. It will be far easier to get the marbles back by talking to George Osborne at the British Museum. Or Lord Big Dave. Neither gives a fuck whether they stay in the UK. And if it's okay, I'll pass on seeing Olive. He's even more useless than you. K. Olive and Rish high-fived each other and celebrated with a Diet Coke. This was more like it. Living on the edge. Just watch the whole of the UK congratulate them on their tough negotiations. They weren't going to be pushed around. Oh no. Tough on foreigners. Tough on the causes of foreigners. An hour later, an anxious-looking Jeremy Hunt barged in. Had they heard, the Greek Prime Minister had driven a JCB down the A303 and dug up Stonehenge, and was now in the process of loading it onto a plane at Stansted. Something had to be done. There's only one thing for it, Rish declared. We'll have to declare war on Greece. Call Grant Chaps at Defence and get him to send our aircraft carrier to the Aegean, and we'll need the SAS. Olive could barely contain his priapism. He'd been gagging for a good war. The excitement of his own self-importance. It was worth other people dying for this. The Tory right would be thrilled, as would the whole country. Rejoice, rejoice. This could change the whole election. Right, chaps, squeaked Olive. We're going into Corfu. They play cricket already, so they must subconsciously want to be invaded by us. OK, said Rish, putting on the combat jersey President Zelensky had given him. While we're about it, let's also go to war with Spain. Time to make Gibraltar British! Um, mumbled Jezza. It already is British. You're kidding! Well, let's invade it anyway, just to make sure. Just then, the phone rang. 
it was Javier Millet in Argentina. He was taking back the Falklands and installing Liz Truss as governor. Cut our one aircraft carrier in half, Rich ordered, and send the stern to the South Atlantic. There's no time to lose! That was Cancel the Meeting. It's not just the Greeks who've lost their marbles. By John Crace. Read by Dan Starkey. Next, Gareth Gates has had a rollercoaster career since competing in Pop Idol as a teenager. Here, he tells Amina Sena about pop stardom, scandal, and how his stammer has shaped his life. Read by Kenton Thomas. For Gareth Gates, the toughest moment of the recent reality show Celebrity SAS Who Dares Wins wasn't dealing with CS gas or stress holds or even sharing a dorm room with Matt Hancock. It happened in an interview room. Gates has had a lifelong stammer and speaking in a stressful situation was about as hard as it gets. When I was stretched in every way, physically drained and exhausted, to then have to talk, which is my hardest thing in life, was tough, he says. And I was unearthing trauma and exposing scars I hadn't spoken about before. In the show, which puts contestants through SAS training, Gates broke down, berating himself as he did. I said I wouldn't do this. He talked haltingly, between tears, about being bullied at school. Sometimes he was held down and physically attacked, hearing boys shouting, let's beat the words out of him. After the show finished, the contestants were offered therapy sessions. I absolutely took it. I definitely needed it. I'd tapped into areas I hadn't been to for many years. Gates won the show, which was a happy end to a gruelling process, and proved to himself that he could win a reality show. He came to fame via Pop Idol, the TV singing contest in 2002, when he was the runner-up to Will Young. If the first reality show changed his life, so did the latest one. He learned, he says, how resilient I am. At school, I always saw myself as very weak. I actually was very weak then, but I'm no longer the cowering boy who sits in the corner. I have learned to speak up. I've learned to be stronger. It took for SAS to happen to really realise how far I'd come. Gates is talking from his cabin aboard a cruise ship, somewhere in the Atlantic, where he performs most nights. On the 9th of November, a few days before we speak via a video call, he had posted a video on Instagram, calling out three women in the next cabin. He could hear them making fun of his speech. Even at 39, Gates is dealing with bullying. I've had it my entire life, and when it does happen, I've learned to switch off. It usually happens on nights out, and usually comes from drunk men, he says. Most of the time, he ignores it, but being on a ship with his partner, it became too much. Every time we went out on the balcony and they heard we were there, the abuse started. It was fine at first, and if I'd been on my own, I'd have probably just let it go. Or if it had been guys, I'd have gone round. It was his partner who confronted them. And it stopped. Off the back of SAS, it just felt the right time to do a stand-up to bullying post. And it was huge. It's had over a million views now, and there's lots of comments from people saying they're pleased that I spoke up. We're joined by Chris, a friend and voice coach who occasionally steps in to remind him to slow down, or to breathe, or to have a few seconds rest. Gates finds interviews hard, but he speaks well. He's warm and talks with a smile, although it's clear it is an effort. When we were talking about bullying and, later, about the pressures of young fame, 
his speech is noticeably affected. Live TV interviews are worse. I don't sleep well the night before. I'm up worrying about it. But the one he did two weeks ago on Good Morning Britain reduced the co-host Ed Balls to tears. Balls said seeing Gates had inspired him to be open about his own challenges with the stammer. It means a lot to Gates. I tried to say this on the show, but I wasn't as eloquent towards the end because it all became quite emotional. But I think one of my biggest achievements is I've raised the awareness of stammering, he says. He loves the messages he gets from other people with the stammer. But also, people with anything that holds them back in life. They tell me I've inspired them to keep going and that you don't have to allow something to dictate who we are and what we can achieve. It's a great feeling. Gates was eight when he discovered he could sing. He auditioned for a part in the school production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, only because his friends were doing so. It was a revelation. Not only that he had a lovely voice, but that when he sang, his stammer disappeared. He got the lead part, a role he would later play in the West End. I just completely fell in love with music, because it was my only form of expression, he says. The bullying lessened. I finally gained respect from my peers. It was still hard at school. I was still teased, but it wasn't to the extent of the bullying before, because people saw that I was good at something. He has always questioned why he is able to sing unencumbered. I think it's that I adopt a different persona. I'm not really Gareth Gates. I'm whatever part I'm playing. And that's really helped me. Even in the speaking parts, he's been in musicals including Le Miserable and Legally Blonde. Rehearsing the script thoroughly means he can get fully into character. And it isn't ever an issue. I can talk freely on stage. Gates joined Bradford Cathedral Choir at nine eventually becoming the head chorister. He took up guitar and piano, working his way up through the grades. He got a place at the Royal Northern College of Music, where he planned to study to become an opera singer. But he was also entering local talent competitions, the last of which was Pop Idol. It didn't really matter that he didn't win. He already knew he would be getting a recording contract. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, 
Back to Gareth Gates. The first generation of reality shows have been re-examined in recent years, but Gates says he had a good experience. I was treated well. I was fortunate that I was kind of Simon Cowell's boy from the start. He was rooting for me. The show gave people an insight as to what I was about. Up until then, my speech had always caused me so much hurt and pain, but on Pop Idol, for the first time, it was actually a positive thing because it helped me stand out. None of the contestants had any idea how big the show would become, he says. He became famous overnight. One day, he could walk down the street unscathed. The next, people mobbed him in central London. My t-shirt was ripped and it was all a bit manic, he says. It helped that he was so young. I didn't really think too much. I was purely going along for the ride. He was living his dream and very thankful for that. But it can't have been easy. The tabloids and celebrity magazines were in full feeding frenzy mode. He was a victim of a particularly tawdry kiss and tell. The glamour model, Katie Price, then 24, told of taking 17-year-old Gates' virginity in excruciating detail. Paparazzi would wait for him outside bars and clubs. You were always looking over your shoulder. You were always aware of people, who you can trust, who you can't, he says. I would have thought it would have been harder to deal with as a young person. I think it goes back to the hardship that I had as a child, says Gates. Although that time with the tabloids was hard, it was nothing in comparison to the bullying and the beatings that I went through as a kid because of my speech. That puts it all into perspective, and I think that's why I was able to get through it. Four of Gates' first five singles went to number one, and his first album sold well. His second didn't have the same impact, and the fallout from his relationship with Price had damaged his clean-cut image. It didn't help that he had lied about it at the time, then was forced to admit it, which blew up the story. With 2023 eyes, the power imbalance between Gates and Price, who was seven years older and far more media experienced, feels bigger than it did at the time. In one of her autobiographies, Price jokingly writes about seeing a teenager who still lived at home and would whisper on the phone to her from his bedroom. Had their genders been reversed, Gates may not have been given such a hard time. He took a break. It was his choice, he says. In a 2006 documentary, painfully titled, Whatever Happened to Gareth Gates, he seemed stung by the whole experience. His girlfriend at the time, Suzanne Mole, with whom he later had a short-lived marriage and a daughter, said being dropped by his record label had been tough for him. But with the benefit of maturity and hindsight, it all worked out, he says. The break was for my own sanity, but it wasn't good for his career. The fans certainly didn't like it, he says. I left it a few years before I released the third album, and it didn't do as well, because people move on if the artist isn't active. I was used to having number one after number one and selling millions. And when I didn't do that on album number three, I was a bit gutted. When he was 30, Gates injured one of his vocal cords. It made him reevaluate. He had spent much of his 20s partying. I was going out a lot, but I swapped that for the gym. A few years ago, people noticed how ripped he was getting. He still is. He goes to the gym most days. I've always wanted to look good on the outside, he says. I think that's probably to compensate for not being perfect on the inside. As a stammerer, just doing normal things, I get that anxiety and fear every moment of every day of my life. I see that as an imperfection. 
But it wasn't just about that, he says. It was a way of looking after himself better. Gates is sensible for a pop star. He invested much of his early money well. He describes himself as a businessman, although he lost £250,000 to a currency scam. It took for that injury to happen on my vocal cord to realise I can't really burn the candle at both ends and I want to continue to work, he says. He moved into musical theatre, panto, reality shows and appearing on cruise ships. I'm extremely fortunate that I've continued to work. I haven't ever hit rock bottom. I've never been out of work, so I haven't that tale to tell. Does he worry that there is a stigma attached to being a cruise ship singer? I was asked to do cruise ships years ago and I shared that same mindset purely because of that stigma, he says. I think it's going away now. He loves it. Talking about performing to sold out crowds each night. It's a really lovely gig and I get paid very well. I couldn't care less about the stigma. Is there still a part of him that would like to be a pop star again? He smiles and says a man who is really big in the industry, he won't say who, contacted me two months ago and wants to make another album with me. If he can make it work, he says he barely has a day off until next April. The plan is to release an album next autumn. So it looks like I could be a pop star again, he says with a laugh. Between his second and third albums, Gates started working with the Maguire programme, a course for people who stammer. He also became a coach. When he was promoting his third album, Gates employed a coach from the programme to come on the road with him, working on his speech daily and getting him through his promotional duties. Eventually, I found a good level of eloquence. Since then, his fluency has declined. I'm not in the best place with my stammer, he says. I became complacent after achieving a lot of success with my speech and it became harder and harder and now I'm in a place where I have to kind of start again. He says it is a constant battle. Ordering something in a restaurant, asking for a receipt, chatting to a stranger. You would like to be able to check into a hotel without anxiety. Saying your name for a stammerer is always the hardest thing to say because there's only one answer. Sometimes his partner or his father, who works for Gates, steps in. There's situations and challenges I avoid and that's not good. But at times it's too much. That's something I have to work on. He says he is thankful for his celebrity SAS experience because it's given me the kick up the backside to actually put the work in. I ask if he's accepted his stammer as a part of who he is, but he says he can't. I think that's the battle because in the past I've achieved a good level of eloquence and fluency that I'm trying to get back. I know that I can do it and I will. That was I Have Huge Fear Every Day. Gareth Gates on Bullying, Resilience and Tabloid Gossip by Amina Sena. Read by Kenton Thomas. Finally, without engaging with natural environments, our brains cease to work well. As the new field of environmental neuroscience proves, exposure to nature isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. By Sam Pyra. Read by Dan Starkey. It's a grey November day. Rain gently pocks the surface of the tidal pools. There is not much to see in this East Sussex nature reserve. A few gulls, a little grebe, a solitary wader on the shore. But already my breathing has slowed to the rhythm of the water lapping the shingle. My shoulders have dropped, and I feel imbued with a sense 
of calm. I'm far from alone in finding the antidote to modern life in nature. It's only when I'm outdoors and attentive to the wild things around me that my mind holds still, says James Gilbert, an ecologist from Northamptonshire. Despite his job, it is not visits to nature reserves boasting rare species that provide what he describes as a mental reset, simply the everyday encounters I chance upon in my daily life. These touches of wildness freshen my mind, broaden my perspective, and lift my spirits. Such testimonies to the power of nature are nothing new. What is new is the emerging field of environmental neuroscience, which seeks to explore why, and how, our brains are so profoundly affected by being in nature. You are probably aware of studies showing that green, vegetated, and blue, moving water environments are associated with a reduction in stress, improved mood, more positive emotions, and decreases in anxiety and rumination. But there is growing evidence that nature exposure also benefits cognitive function. All the processes involved in gaining knowledge and understanding, including perception, memory, reasoning, judgment, imagination, and problem-solving. One study found that, after just 40 seconds of looking out at a green roof, subjects made fewer mistakes in a test than when they looked at a concrete one. Dr. Mark Berman, director of the Environmental Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Chicago, taxed subjects' brains with a test known as the backwards-digit span task requiring them to repeat back sequences of numbers in reverse order. Then he sent them for a 50-minute walk, in either an urban setting, a town centre, or a nature setting, a park. On their return, they repeated the task. Performance improved by about 20% when participants had walked in nature, but not when they had walked in an urban environment, he says. The brain boost from being in nature goes beyond getting answers right in a test, according to Professor Catherine Williams, an environmental psychologist at the University of Melbourne. Research has consistently demonstrated enhanced creativity after immersion in natural environments, she says. One study found that a four-day hike, with no access to phones or other technology, increased participants' creativity by 50%. If you're wondering how you can put a number on creativity, that study used the Remote Associates Test, widely used as a measure of creative thinking, insight and problem-solving. Subjects are given three words and have to come up with a word that links them. For example, big, cottage and cake equals cheese. What might be going on here? According to the biophilia hypothesis, popularised by the American sociobiologist E. O. Wilson, humans function better in natural environments because our brains and bodies evolved in and with nature. Biophilia makes a lot of sense, says Dr. David Strayer, a cognitive neuroscientist who heads the Applied Cognition Laboratory at the University of Utah. As hunter-gatherers, those who were most attuned to the natural environment were the most likely to survive. But then we built all this infrastructure we are trying to use the hunter-gatherer brain to live in the highly stressful and demanding modern world. It's not that life as a hunter-gatherer was easy, of course. But, says Strayer, 
The fight-or-flight response that we evolved to deal with it is ill-suited to the way we live now. Most of the stress we encounter today does not require a physical response, but still evokes the same physiological reaction. Raised cortisol levels, increased heart rate and alertness, which can impact immune and cardiovascular function, as well as memory, mood and attention. Exposure to nature activates the parasympathetic nervous system, the branch of the nervous system related to a resting state. This instills feelings of calm and well-being that enable us to think more clearly and positively, just as I experienced on my harborside walk. One recent theory proposes that oxytocin, the bonding hormone, may be behind the phenomenon, exerting its powerful anti-stress and restorative effects when we are in natural settings that we perceive as safe, pleasing, calm and familiar. But if its capacity to make us feel better with the soul pathway through which nature affected the brain, it would only work if you regard being in nature as a positive experience. Those siding with Woody Allen when he said, I love nature, I just don't want to get any of it on me, would not experience a brain boost. However, research by Berman and others suggests that improvements in cognitive function are not linked to improved mood. Berman got his subjects to walk at different times of the year. Even in January, when it was zero degrees outside and people didn't enjoy the nature walk, they still experienced performance improvements in the test, he says. They didn't need to like the nature exposure to reap the cognitive benefits. Another explanation for the nature boost is something known as Attention Restoration Theory, ART. Psychologists call the capacity to sustain focus on a specific mental task, ignoring external distractions, such as your phone, and internal ones, such as your rumbling belly, directed attention. And, according to ART, it is a finite resource. The areas of the brain responsible for this kind of attention can become depleted by multitasking and high-stimulation modern environments, explains Williams. When that happens, we can't concentrate, we make mistakes and get stuck on problems. But there is something about nature that engages the brain in a way that's very undemanding and effortless, giving these areas an opportunity to rest and recover. It's not that natural settings don't have lots of stimuli, but the attention they capture is indirect and spontaneous. We are drawn by the movement of a bird or the sound of our feet padding on fallen leaves. This gentle attendance to our surroundings is known as soft fascination, and while we are immersed in it, directed attention can be restored. Maybe that's why I often find myself recording voice notes or tapping ideas into my phone after spending time in nature. Excitingly, Neuroimaging tools such as electroencephalograms and functional magnetic resonance imaging are helping researchers to glimpse the changes in our brains in real time. Functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI for example, uses something known as BOLD, blood oxygen level dependent imaging, to determine which areas of the brain are most active during exposure to different stimuli. Like muscles, the more active parts require more oxygenated blood. Studies have revealed a drop in the bold signal in the prefrontal cortex, an important brain structure in executive function, during nature exposure, supporting the idea that this part of the brain is off-duty at the time. It has also been shown that a greater number of brain areas are activated when viewing urban scenes, suggesting more effort is required to process them.
The drawback with fMRI is that it requires you to lie still, ruling out real-life nature experiences, which is why Berman is excited about his newest tool, Functional Near-Infrared Spectroscopy, FNIRS. We have some idea of what the brain looks like when it is working hard, he says, but FNIRS enables us to shine infrared light into the brain of a person as they walk through different environments, to see whether it is working harder or easier. Having established a clear connection between nature and brain function, scientists are drilling down into what aspects of a natural environment might render it most restorative. There is some research to suggest that higher quality environments are superior. Places with a diversity and abundance of bird and tree species yielded less anxiety and better mood than less species-rich areas. That's not good news for Britons, in one of the world's most nature-denuded nations. Berman is looking at the role that perceptual features within the environment play. The fact that there can be a cognitive boost, simply from looking at pictures of nature, got us wondering if there was something about the presence of fractals, straight or curved lines, colour hue and saturation, that might make it restorative, he explains. Fractals, naturally occurring patterns that are repeated at different scales within a structure, such as a snowflake, a fern or a tree, have been found to elicit soft fascination. Another example is the presence of curved lines, hills, paths or rivers, for example, in a landscape. These natural features may be processed more fluently by the brain because we evolved with them, says Berman. Urban settings are typically less fractal, with more hard edges and straight lines, offering little in the way of softly fascinating stimuli. Add to this the abundance of other stimuli, traffic, Crowds, adverts, sirens, social media pings, clamouring for your attention, and you can see why they could be more taxing on the brain. Theoretically, if built environments mimic these patterns from nature, with fewer hard lines, more curves and a high fractal structure, they might have a similarly beneficial effect on cognition. But I can't help feeling alarmed by this kind of research. Could it lead us to believe that we don't need nature if we can identify, isolate and reproduce the relevant qualities and features? I have also come across studies showing that inhaling the extracted oils from conifers, the type integral to the Japanese practice of forest bathing, shinrin-yoku, lowers heart rate and blood pressure, reduces blood flow to the prefrontal cortex and instills a good mood, dispensing the need for a walk in the woods. We're not trying to create a nature pill, Berman insists, pointing to research that shows exposure to real-world nature yields greater improvements in mood and aspects of cognitive performance. We are looking at why we build things the way that we do. Now it's all about efficiency. But we could be thinking instead about creating a built environment that elicits the best attention, high levels of well-being, cooperation. We could be putting natural elements into streets, offices, schools, homes. And don't forget that not everybody has access to nature. Regardless of access issues, most of us spend very little time in nature. A government survey last year found that a quarter of people hadn't visited a green or natural space once in the previous 14 days. And yet, as the BMJ reported in 2021, greater contact with nature is associated with better cognition, working memory, spatial memory attention, visual attention, reasoning, fluency, 
intelligence, and childhood intellectual development. This growing body of research is demonstrating that we can't be healthy, that our brains do not work optimally if we don't spend time in natural environments, says Berman. It's not a luxury, it's a necessity. That was The Nature Cure, How Time Outdoors Transforms Our Memory, Imagination and Logic by Sam Pyra, read by Dan Starkey. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Dan Starkey and Kenton Thomas and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter and Nicola Alexandru. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.